0: Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget the free TuneIn app, we're there too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There's nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages, and their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week, we feature Chicago's very own Michael Wilbon. I grew up wanting to work for the Tribune or Sun-Times. I delivered them. I
1: delivered both newspapers, I had a paper route at 11, 11 years old, so I had a paper route from... 19 the summer of 1970 until I went to Northwestern to come to
0: college. Michael Wilbon is a diehard Chicagoan but he made his mark as a reporter and columnist for the Washington Post and then at ESPN where he teamed up with Tony Kornheiser over the last 20 years for the wildly popular pardon the interruption. Wilbon is a Southsider who parlayed hard work, ingenuity, integrity and a gift for gab into a resoundingly successful career. So Michael Wilbon, Tell me a story I don't know. Oh, goodness, George. We've known each other so long. I don't know how
1: many of these you can't know because we've talked a number of times, obviously. I'm going to tell you one, but it's going to be, it's, 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 it's you got a self-indulgent story. It's there's too much me, me, me. But in 1997, I'm going to say just about 1997, when the great Bob Verdi, columnist for the Chicago Tribune and probably my favorite columnist of sports columnist of my lifetime. Uh, Bob had decided he was going to semi-retire, do other things, but not write the Daily Column anymore. And I ran into him somewhere in the press box in America, and he said, um, it's time for you to come home. And I, I said, I, I come to Chicago all the time. What are you talking about? And he said, no, it's time for you to come home. I'm going to stop doing this every day, and you, you're the person who should succeed me. You're the person who should be doing this. And I, it, it, it immediately freaked me out because, again, Bob Verde, to me, Bob Verde is the great – columnist chicago sports columnist of my lifetime and that's saying something because there were so many great columnists when i was growing up you know from mike royko and bob green and you could be outside of sports or you could be inside of sports with so many wonderful columnists and the tribune then started talking to me about coming home in the late 1990s um, i was coming home a lot anyway because let's face it if you were a sports writer then and covering the nba at all you were there for a lot of michael jordan Chicago Bulls activities over the years, right? I've been there a lot. And I always wanted to come home. I I mean, I wanted to, I grew up wanting to work for the Tribune or Sun-Times. I delivered them. I delivered both newspapers. (laughs) A maximum of 92 houses on Yale
0: and and
1: Wentworth in the, from, from when I was 11, I had a paper route at 11, 11 years old, so I had a paper route from 19, the summer of 1970 until I went to Northwestern, until I went to college. And um, 365 days a year, up at five o'clock in the morning. I tell my son that now he doesn't believe me. But I wanted to work for the Tribune or Sun Times. That was my goal in life, and the Tribune was going to make it possible. And I came home. I visited. There was a recruiting thing going on. One of the phone calls I get often of was from Jay Mariotti. Jay's at the other paper. Jay's at the Sun Times. But Jay could foresee something I couldn't, and he was right. He could foresee sports writers on TV. He always thought that the next Siskel and Ebert weren't going to be at the movies. They were going to be at the arena, at the stadium, in a press box. And Mariotti always thought that. He thought that the two of us at competing papers like Siskel and Ebert would be on WGN. That's what he always thought. And he had it right. I mean, it didn't appear on WGN because I didn't come. Um, I just decided I had the best job I could possibly have at the time at the Washington Post. And I didn't leave to come home. And it was the hardest decision of my
0: life. You called him the great Bob Verdi, which is, by the way, how I call him. I always call him the great Bob Verde. Right. Who, by the way, is one of the greatest storytellers and it's one of the funniest human beings on this earth. And the nicest man ever. Absol- absolutely. And I remember yeah. when I went on, I was with the score then. So I go on with Northern I, I I'm I'm talking as if I'm, saying that somebody's passed away. I said, I've got this sad news about Bob Verde. He's leaving the Tribune. And those two guys said, man, you made it sound like he died. And I said, for me, it is. He's leaving Part of me. Part of me died. I like reading (laughs) Bob
1: Verde. I mean, again, you know, there's been a lot of terrific columns. Chicago is a city that um, John Shulian, you know, was writing a sports column. You know, I, I wanted to join that roster of people. You know, at the so Skip Bayless wound up being the person that took that column after Bob. Skip Bayless wound up writing that column, and um, he and Mariotti were the columnists, sort of a record in town. Um, and, it, and it came out. I mean, they it, it, it continued to be great columnists. David Hall. I mean, they continued to be people that I certainly went out of my way to read. Man, I, I really. To this day, sometimes I walk down Michigan Avenue, particularly if I walk past the Tribune Tower, and I just wonder, what would have happened?
0: What would my life have been like if I had come home? Well, you didn't come home, and instead partnered with Tony Kornheiser for what I believe is and has been the best sports show on TV since its inception, 19-plus years ago, pardon the interruption. It's always fresh, it's always lively, it's always entertaining, So, Wilbon, tell me a story I don't know, how this show developed, whose brainchild was it, why did they pick the two of you, and why has it endured? Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon, and welcome to opening
1: day in this bizarre television experiment. And I'm Tony Kornheiser, and if we can have a TV show, you can have a TV show. Well, thank you, first of all, George. Um, That's high praise coming from you. because you've known me long before this incarnation, of course. Um, Mark Shapiro, who was doing um, Sports Century in 1990, about the same time, by the way, that I'm thinking about coming home, I'm already on this panel. And the panel had, I don't know how many people were on the panel, but they were entrusted to select the 100 greatest athletes of the 20th century. And we're doing this in 1997, 8-ish, because the list is going to be announced at the end of 1999. And I was one of them. Tony Kornheiser was was one of them as well. Um, And we would sit in our offices, which were about, the doors were about seven feet apart. And we would scream and holler at each other about this list, among other things. We did this every day. And Mark Shapiro, a young ESPN executive at the time, um, and, and he was the executive producer of, you know, Sports Century, it was his baby, his project. And it was a very important project because you got all those biographies. I think a half an hour for some people, but as you got toward the top of the pyramid, I think it was an hour for each person. And Mark would come to Washington and sit and listen, to Tony and me screaming at each other across the hallway. And he said, one day I'm gonna put this, I'm gonna become somebody at ESPN. And if I do, I'm putting you two on television doing this. <laughs> and I remember Tony just said to him, that's nice. Can you give me another cup of coffee, please? Cause he, I mean, Mark was young. He was, I mean, he was in his, I mean, so 1998, I was 39. Mark was barely 30. And he said, if I ever become anybody, I'm putting this on television. Fast forward to 2001, summer of, and I get a call in LA. I'm covering the Lakers and whoever the Lakers are playing in the finals in 2001. And it's Mark Shapiro. And he says, Hey, I, I got to have dinner with you tomorrow night. And I said, Mark, I'm in L.A. And he goes, I know where you are. I'm reading the newspaper. I know exactly where you are. We got to have dinner tomorrow night. I'm like, why? And he said, we'll have dinner. I'll tell you. So he flies out to L.A. We have dinner at the Ivy, uh, you know, in Beverly Hills. And he says, "Um, I told you, I promised you guys, if I ever became someone of stature at the network, I was going to put you on television. Well, tomorrow I'm being named whatever the title is. Call it President of Programming. That wasn't the name of the title, but whatever the, whatever the title was, it was essentially that. And he said, my first thing is I wanna put you and Tony on a, on a show. And I said, that's your first act in this new position? Your second act is you're gonna get your ass fired. <laughs> so that's what ought to happen. And he said, no, I'm gonna do this, and if you two guys say no, I'm gonna put somebody else on. But if this show is gonna happen, it's gonna be commenting on the news, And Tony and I said to Mark, you know, we don't want to be in something like Crossfire, which was on CNN, where two people pick a position or they're assigned a position and they just fight it out. We don't want that. Yeah. We wanted it to be more like Hello Chicago Connection, Siskel and Ebert, where people sat and talked and reviewed and opined and commented and criticized. Yes, criticized. Um, There were no hot takes yet because that stupid phrase hadn't been invented, thank God. (laughs) But – I called Tony after this meeting. The meeting went for four hours from 8 till midnight Pacific time. So by the time I gathered myself and sat in the car and tried to understand what I had just been a part of in a conversation, it was 1 a.m. local time in L.A. It was 4 a.m. in the east, and I knew Tony would get up to walk his dog at 4 a.m. So I called him, and I said, you need to listen. You need to not say a word for 10 minutes. I'm going to talk. I'm going to tell you why our lives are going to change, and then we can free for all. And that's what happened. I I talked to him from four until 415 in the morning, Eastern time. And I just said, our lives are going to be different forever. And they, they, obviously they are, they have been. Um, So, you know, we can say we didn't see it coming, but maybe we saw it a little, you know, we thought it could work. We, we, George, we knew we could do what was being asked of us. It didn't mean, a, we were going to be good at it, but I, we thought we were going to be good at it. And it didn't mean that people would give a damn. I mean, just because you're good at something doesn't mean people care. You know, um, we know that with basically 100% of the teachers in the world. Not enough people care, even though they're great at what they do. So so many of them. So just because you're doing something and you're doing it pretty well doesn't mean people give a damn. But people did. And so that's, that's how... That started, why has it lasted? Because pe- everybody, David West once said when he was in college, at Xavier, you know, he talked about, he liked watching two old people argue. When somebody said, why do you like this show? You're like 18 at the time. And I, we, we were like 40, 40 and 50. And David West talked about it. He said, everybody watches sports with somebody they argue with like this. And that's, the, that's it, that's, it's no mystery. That's the secret, there's, except there's no secret. Like, who, 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 who that cares about sports doesn't passionately discuss it, engage in the discussion of it with somebody else?
0: But it's, but it's, a, it's about chemistry, and we all know Yeah, that but everybody's got sports. that
1: chemistry with somebody. Right. Right? I mean, everybody's got that chemistry. People are – my brother says that he was my co-host before Tony, and he was. <laughs> We've been doing this at our kitchen table since we were six and eight years old with my father sitting there mediating or not. So everybody has this and everybody has it with somebody with whom they have some chemistry or it wouldn't work. The conversations wouldn't go on for years and decades. Right. They just wouldn't. But they do. And they go on when you hate the other person, when you love the other person, when the other person, you know, gets married or divorced or has children or doesn't or has tragedy. You still have people that you engage in this deep discussion with. And it's not like politics where it becomes awkward or, wow, we shouldn't talk about this because it's not polite. There's nothing polite about sports conversation and engagement, but it's okay. Everyone has a permission slip signed to talk about this. Given how good the heat looked, wouldn't you get Embiid back into the Philly lineup for game three? You think after you trashed my boy, my friend Dwayne yeah. Wade from the yeah. South Side of Chicago. That's right, Hall of Famer, That's third right. best three guard, two guard in the history of the league. Okay. You think after you trash him, yeah. moment after moment after moment, ghost of Dwayne Wade. You know yeah, it's amazing how he could put his crutches down. Yeah. You know, shoot the ball and pick his crutches up to limp Can back I tell you like something? Walter Brennan down the court because he That is a great reference Philly's for people butt. over 80. Walter Brennan. Yeah, that works Redden, for you. Um, So better people than you have trashed me. (laughs) Tosh trashed me on Twitter.
0: Tell me a story I don't know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meat since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section, everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meat loaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which are so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Palina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me A Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media, at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the free TuneIn app or wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Michael Wilbon on Tell Me A Story I Don't Know. You have covered countless Super Bowls, Final Fours, NBA finals. There have been great ones. There have been disappointing ones. There have been bizarre ones, but nothing like having one take place in a bubble. Tell me a story I don't know about trying to be part of something like that when you're not there.
1: Well, you can't be part of it. You can't. And, and, and there's no real story because I never got there. Um, I was going there. I was on the way, and then there came an opportunity. Uh, I was literally packing to go to the bubble to go like the last month. So I would have gotten the conference finals and the finals in. And I was, I'm not going to, was I looking forward to it? You know, is like the Olympics A- at the end of the Olympics. I'm always glad I did it. <laughs> I was never glad in the middle of it. That's not true for the Olympics necessarily, but you know, I'm, I, the Olympics wound up being something I was glad I had done. And I, I was thinking of the bubble in the same way. So I was on the way, but there became an opportunity that the network had that we were going to get Magic Johnson to be part of pregame shows. And, you know, I mean, let's, I've worked with Magic for years, and we've become very good friends over those years. And um, there was a sense that, that it, this was going to be under Stephen A. Smith's domain and his center brand, and I needed to stay and do that. And I, I, t- I told the powers of be, no, you guys need to decide that. that that's way above me and enough people said hey we we want to we want to have irvin on these and why wouldn't you like like irvin johnson's voice we don't have enough of the voices of the great nba players of yesteryear Yeah, yesteryear in other words old in other words my age or slightly younger or older yes we have great voices now like i love working with john Barry. you know john's still on john's doing radio mm-hmm. i love working i love i've done occasional work though less than with magic with with paul pierce you know, and with Chauncey Billups and with Jalen Rose, more with Jalen. I love, I love working with them. I've done less of that because the time has been more compact because I covered their, the end of their careers, their whole careers. Um, but, but the network, all networks miss, you know, Magic's voice. We don't have enough Michael Jordan's voice. That's why the damn documentary was so great. Yeah, it, it was for a million reasons. But hearing his voice, we don't have Larry Bird's voice enough. We have more of Magic's. We have Charles's, thank God. We don't have enough of Magic's. And so when Magic says he's going to do a few shows, the network in which he's done a lot of shows, years worth, ours, I'm all in. So it was the bubble or work with Irvin. And I wish there had been more dates to work with him. You know, we, we did a few shows. I wish there had been more because we, we, we need his voice. We need his common sense. We need his perspective. And it's not to say that we don't need the perspective of the people I just mentioned who are younger. Jay will. Love him right? I love all those guys I mentioned. I, I text with them. I When those guys are on the air, I, I text with J-Will and with Paul, you know, and, and Jalen, and others. You know, um, I've worked with, I love working with Scotty on the jump a lot, and that's been more years. And we need more Scotty's voice, because he is both, a little bit younger than the guys I mentioned, a little younger than me, but we need Scotty's voice. And so I like hearing all those guys. TMAC. You know, I love hearing their voices. Um, but it's not the same as being there. I like hearing their voices when we're all there. Cause I think that's what, that's what that mix, you know, makes a product.
0: You know, I just mentioned to you that you have covered so many events and the easiest question to ask someone like you or me that have covered a lot of events over the course of history is, you know, what's what's your favorite event? That's too easy. Tell me a story, I don't know, what was the most electric event you ever covered?
1: It has nothing to do with basketball. It was uh, Kathy Freeman at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney when she was the face of the 2000 Olympics as an Australian woman and as an Aboriginal woman. And she ran the 400 uh, in front of 120,000 people in that stadium in Sydney on a damp, almost rainy night. And she had been on the Sydney Morning Herald, maybe the name of the newspaper was her whole face, a tightly cropped shot of her face the morning of the race and it said the race of her life or the race of their our lives the race of our lives and she had been running with the two flags the aboriginal flag and the australian flag braided she had been taking her victory laps with them over her shoulder and i had gone to press conferences and she was part of the opening ceremonies and it just seemed to me that this was the most stirring emotional thing i had ever seen and i get emotional talking about it 20 years later and she ran the race that night, and she was behind after 200 meters, it seemed to me. And I remember thinking, I, at that point, I'd already seen Michael Jordan play in six finals in my hometown. I'd already seen the Bears win a championship. I hadn't seen the Cubs win one or the White Sox in my lifetime. But I'd seen emotional things in my life, right, things that mattered to me. Mm. I played sports, competed in sports. I'd seen Northwestern go to the Rose Bowl. I'd seen things that were important to me. And when Kathy Freeman was trailing after a couple of hundred meters, it just, the life went out of me. I didn't even know the woman. I did not know her. And I just, I felt depressed for about six seconds. And everybody stood and you could see her making up the ground on the people she was trailing. And when she won the race, I just, I, my heart has never beat faster than that. Never. It was, nothing has ever been that important to me. I'm 6,000 miles or whatever, more than that, 12,000 miles away from home, whatever it is. And I then, after that, got to know Kathy Freeman. And I wrote about her uh, and what she was up against and what she did and her uh, intellect and her grace and her beauty and her, Um, competitive spirit. I wrote about it, and then four years later, four years later in Athens, I got to meet her. She was working for their ABC, Australian Broadcast Company, and she ran over and she hugged me, and I said to her, I must not be who you think I am. She goes, (laughs) you're exactly who I think you are. I read every word you wrote in the Washington Post about me after I got home. And there was it was never as important to me that an athlete or coach or whomever saw my work than it was that she saw it. And so we got, we had a connection over that. Um, And so that's the most exciting thing I've ever seen. It's not the Cubs in 2016, although, (laughs) you know, I mean, that's gotta be, I was in Cleveland sitting there in the stands with my brother. You know, we, we, we used to go to Wrigley Field with our paper route money. I'd buy an $8 box seat with my paper route money from delivering this Tribune and the Sun-Times. And an usher would come and see, you know, a kid who was 12 years old sitting in a box seat and say, can I see your ticket stub? Yeah, you can. And then a couple of times, they, they got used to seeing me. They would say, why are you sitting up here? I'm like, because I can afford to. Because I can. I want to sit right here. And I sat in those same sections, 420, 419 through 424. I sit in those sections now. And I sat in them every playoff game I could, 2015, 16, 17, 18.
0: You're mentioning that. So, and you're you're wearing a Northwestern T-shirt. So, tell me, what was it like when Northwestern finally, finally made the NCAA tournament? Yeah, it was even bigger than the Rose Bowl in some ways because you had
1: an extra – Twenty twenty years, twenty one years between the two things, twenty two years. So, I mean, if you, if I had to rank the most important sporting events of my life, I, I, I guess the Cubs winning is one. My mother was ninety one years old, and a great part of us knows that she'd held on for certain things. She held on to see my her grandson, my nephew, graduate from Saint Ignatius. She held on to have her 90th birthday. Um, she held on to see the Cubs win, like a lot of people. And you know, she would sit on her rooftop on Lakeshore Drive um, at the, the, the high-rise building complex that she lived in, in a senior complex, Brookdale, um, just north of Belmont. She would sit there with them on the roof and they could hear the cheers from Wrigley Field in 15 and 16. Sure you could from there, yep. You could, and a lot of people t- didn't make it. People that she had dinner with and people that I had dinner with in their dining room, they didn't make it, a lot of people didn't make it. So, but that's one. Two, I guess it's gotta be the Bears in 85. And then I guess, remember, I've, you know, people who have might've gone to Northwestern and saying, wow, how can he put all these things before the Wildcats? Cause I was a Bears fan before I went to the Northwestern. I've been a Bears fan since five. Quarterback Nick Foles was intercepted twice and sacked four times. Wilbon, would you like to focus on how good the Rams looked or how bad the Bears looked? I don't know how good the the Rams looked because they played the Bears, and the Bears had no clue. Mm. And it's an indictment of their head coach, their head coach. Let me be very specific. It's an indictment of him because he came in as an offensive genius and he has no offense, all right? So it's an indictment of him, the structure of his offense, and his play calling. At fourth and one at 1.20, and I think it was still a real game, he hands off to his return man. All right. Who has his, his returner has probably never had a fourth and one in his life and blocking in the game at the same time is the guy, the draft pick who looks like he can actually be a runner. And so he right now is failing the team in any number of ways and doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't even seem to understand that his opposite number coach McVay just kicked his butt all over the field and he's rarely accountable for what happens he goes wow i've never been a part of something like this before well you are now and your offense and you're supposed to be a genius it stinks i
0: don't know that i could put a finer point on it than that listen wilbon you bleed chicago sports that's how shall i put this painfully obvious you left this city for D.C. 40 years ago, but you never really left since you've been seen at Wrigley Field on countless occasions. And of course, Northwestern, where you're an alum and part of their board, and you still have a residence here. So tell me a story I don't know about this full time affection for Chicago sports. And have you seen a doctor about this lately? <laughs> no, ever. <laughs> And, yeah, I
1: mean, one of the, the best thing that came out of me not, not coming home ever to write for the Tribune or Sun-Times is I could root for my teams. Because you can't do that if you're covering the teams seriously, even if you're writing a column. You can admit that you were a fan of this team growing up, but you, got, you have to be hypercritical. I, I can still – I can take – I can put the hats on and off, take them on and off. But the best thing was I could go and sit in the stands and watch my teams. If I'd come back home in 97, I couldn't have done that. That's the best thing to come out of the – well, second best thing. The best thing was I stayed and I – my life turned out the way it did uh, in Washington with Tony, no less. But I did all those things. I've been a fan of those teams since I was five. I mean, the Cubs since seven or six or seven, Bears since five, Bulls since the beginning, I was seven. How old was I? I was seven when the Bulls were created.
0: Yeah, Um, 66, 67. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so, yeah, my birthday's in November of 58, so I was seven. And uh, or maybe yeah, I get maybe I, I was just turning eight, and um, so I you know and then Northwestern, so I've had I've had fifty five years plus of those other knucklehead teams, and 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 forty years plus of this.
0: I know where you're coming from. Believe me, I do. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog, and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers, and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballpark, Sox & Cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online coast-to-coast at viennabeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was winged on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at viennabeef.com. You're listening to Tell Me A Story I Don't Know with ESPN's Michael Wilbon. Now, let me tell you a story you don't know about me and Wilbon. This is the end of March 1990, and I am sitting with Mike, Terry Boers and another person who I cannot remember in the McNichols Arena. It's Final Four weekend. I'm doing a backdrop story for NPR, National Public Radio. I have my sound. I am writing the piece. It's, it's going to be airing the Tuesday morning after the championship game only. Something huge happened on April 1st to kill that story. And you're looking as if you may not remember. I remember sitting in McNichols for the Final Four. But I don't. 1990 what the hell happened in 90 it happened that day and became such major news that it was almost bigger than the game itself which i believe was a blowout it would have been the firing of Brent Musburger oh oh my god my story got killed by the way wow
1: wow I, you know wow that's a wow i would i i look Brent is someone I follow, someone who has been great to me personally and professionally. I would not have attached George a date to that. And, I, and obviously, you know, yeah, I would have overtaken it for a great many people who watched Brent and listened to Brent. Look, I read Brent. I read Brent. I That's read him The Bears. And he wrote a column when I was a kid in the 1960s. And I would read at, I don't know, must have been I must have been 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. would Read Brent Musburger. Yes, I mean I wanted to. I don't. I don't know that I wanted that. I knew I wanted to be Brent, but yeah, it's interesting. People talk about crossover. Somebody called me a pioneer. I'm like, please stop. You know, please. <laughs> I mean, I grew up getting to see. I'm gonna mention somebody other than Brent to you real quickly. I got. I got to. I got to read, listen to, and then see Brent. And I had the same thing with Wendell Smith. Mm-hmm. Wendell Smith. I'm not even a pioneer as it involves black people doing this because Wendell Smith did this. He did it with the Chicago Sun-Times and on channel nine. Yep. might've been on channel two at a point, but he was on channel nine. So I got to see a black man do this in the, once again, 1960s. So people come up to me and they say, you're a pioneer. You did this in the
0: 1990s. It's like, stop. We can share these stories because they're the same for me as they are for you in many ways. Now you, you were, you were born here and you, spent your time on the South side. Tell me a story I don't know about that time and what shaped who Michael Wilbon is today. Well, all of a shot. I was born on the
1: North side. I was born in oh, White's, I didn't Memorial. Know that. White's Memorial Hospital, which is still there intact on Lakeshore Drive. I drive past it every time I go to Evanston. How about that? Or
0: every time I come back, I drive past well, it. Well, when, when did you move to the South side? There was no moving. I was born in Oh, you were born there. In the hospital.
1: Always it's, lived on the south side. My parents it's
0: interesting. It's interesting that you say that because I was born at Mount Sinai on the South Side. Oh, wow. And we moved to the North Side when I was seven months old. This story's what? getting very interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I always lived on the I only lived on the South Side until I went to Northwestern. But
1: you said tell your story. So about how these things shaped me. I mean, I I'm a I'm a, I'm all of it. I'm a son of the Midwest. I'm a product of public school K through nine and then Catholic school in high school, St. Ignatius. I'm a product of Jesuit education and public education. Um, I'm a product of growing up on the South side. uh, The product of a, a woman who taught a mother who taught school for 35 years, all of it public school, a father who like my mother fled the South and hated it, fled the South during the great migration. And so my feelings about the South are very, conflicted and, 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 complex. Um, and so I grew up in an almost perfect setting, you know, the places where I grew up, and I hear now about somebody being shot nearby or on that street or a neighbor being killed. I didn't have any of that. I grew up, <laughs> I grew up sitting on a park bench with my best friends half the nights, you know, until 11 o'clock or later until a parent came and got us. And we never had a fear of anything nothing. I'm a product of of all of that. I'm a product of a a Little League that was sponsored by Ernie Banks. Wow. The jerseys on the back of some of the uniforms, not mine. Certainly the team that was the Cubs and wore the blue, they had Ernie Banks Ford on the back of their jerseys. And so people say, how can you be a fan of the Cubs? You're on the south side. What? I played Little League because of Ernie Banks. I don't know that we have a Little League without his sponsoring that Little League. Every jersey didn't have Ernie Banks Ford in the back, but the Little League was co-sponsored by Ernie, which 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 he knew. And he knew because I would say to him as an adult, I don't think I could have played Little League without you. And he would say, yeah, I don't believe that. If the angels would have come down. You would have played Little League. Let's, let's go have a ginger ale.
0: You know, it's funny that you say that because I have been trying to convince people for years Yeah, I tried to do it when I would do talk shows on uh, on the score radio, uh, especially baseball shows, that I was a fan of both teams. Well, you'd get people always arguing on both sides. You can't be a fan of both teams. And I said, well, I am a fan of both teams. And the reason I'm a fan of both teams is because I grew up with Jack Brickhouse. And Jack Brickhouse, of course, noteworthy for doing the Cubs, also did the White Sox games. Back in the '60s, and so as a kid, you get to watch a night game that involved the Yankees and Maris and Mantle and Tresh and Elston Howard and Bobby Richardson and Whitey Ford, and then you'd hear Brickhouse doing the Cubs games. And so I've always been a fan of both teams. Listen, I never rooted against the White Sox. As a matter of fact, because my father
1: is rolling in his grave every time I cheer for the Cubs. My father was a White Sox fan. I came home one day and a guy is sitting on the front steps of my house talking to my father with, with a peg leg. You want to guess who
0: that was? Oh yeah. It's Mr. vec Bill Veck.
1: <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know why. I don't I don't know how that conversation took place or why it took place. I, I don't, I don't know. I was too young, but I don't, I cheer for the White Sox. I'm happy that the White Sox are good. And Bill Melton, I have, I have home movies of Bill Melton and Walt Williams who lived two blocks away from me. No I remember 82nd and Wentworth. They lived at 82nd and Perry. They came to my Little League game. Bill Melton. They were at the Little League parade on the opening day for us. Bill Melton and Walt No-Neck Williams. I think Bill lived with Walt No-Neck Williams then. And... You know, what? I was going to root against them, I'm going to root against Major League Baseball players, one who would become the home run champion during that time, Bill Moulton. No, so I didn't get – you know, I don't let adults tell me what I should do. I don't particularly let New Yorkers, because they're divided by bridges. I don't let them – I don't give a shit what they think about who I root for and how they're not the – the Mets and the Yankees and the Giants. I don't give a damn about the Mets and the Yankees and the Giants and the Dodgers. My world's not framed by New York crap. So – I, I Yeah, I'm like you, George. I grew up rooting for both teams. And I, the Cubs became a more of a way of life for me. I think in Evanston, once I went to college and I could take the train, I wasn't going to come all the way back to the South Side, but I could get the train to Wrigley and watch the Cubs. And Dave Baseball did it and being on GN did it. And the White Sox got off GN and that killed it to some degree for in terms of a national following. That's what enables when you talk to people from places like San Antonio and Sacramento and they say, I'm a Cub fan. You know why they're a Cub fan? Cause they were on GN. Once GN got to be a superstation on cable. And so that, that, you know, Eddie Reinsdorf and I mean, Eddie Einhorn and, um, and Reinsdorf, Mr. Reinsdorf, they were just ahead of their time a little bit. They were, they they, they were just ahead of their time um, in terms of people, the distribution of, of baseball telecast. But anyway, um, I, I, I'm a product of all that, and um, I see it all the time. My son, thank God my son was willing to be a product of it. He's 12. Um, he picks games. He would wake up at five and six years old on a Saturday and say, Dad, can we go to Cubs Cardinals? And I would say, Matthew, you realize Cubs Cardinals is in Chicago. <laughs> and we got on a plane and went to Chicago so much. he said, say, okay, well, why can't we go? And I would say, you know what? There's no reason we can't go. Let's go. There you go. And so we did it. And in, in the now, you know, he's a full-fledged. He has to explain to people in greater Washington, D.C., why, when they say you have Jersey Day, why he's got on Javi Baez. You know, why he has on Devin Hester or Brian Erlacher, you know, or, or, you know, Robinson now. Why, you know, he has on, oh, my God, when the Capitals won two years ago, Why does he have Patrick Kane on on Jersey Day and not (laughs) Alexander Ovechkin, who gave me a jersey, signed it, and said, this is for your son. He can stop wearing that Patrick Kane jersey, but he's not going to stop wearing the Patrick Kane jersey. So, yeah, it's it's ingrained in me. I will die with it. I don't know how long. Maybe he'll be moved off
0: that mark. We'll see how it goes. I conclude all of these interviews, Michael, with this question. What would you have been had it not been for journalism?
1: I don't know. I knew early. I'm not one of those people who got into it by accident. I'm not a person who got into it late. I didn't come to it by happenstance. I didn't come to it because you know, I, I knew um, when I was, I knew for sure when I was 14 or 15. Before that, I used to go to Chicago Public Library. So on Saturdays, my brother and I had music lessons, playing keyboards, organ. And I would go to Lion and Healy on Adams and Wabash and I would we would take our music lessons for a half for an hour and that would go from like 11 to 12 or 12 to 1 and then I would get back home at about 6 or 7 o'clock and my parents would say where you been where have you been you're 12 years old (laughs) and I would say I was at Chicago Public Library which I was and I would look at the microfilm I would take for people who don't know what that is which is everybody younger than us I would take the, the, the film and put it on the spool and I would I would just not research I would just read a season of something. So I would read like the 1927 season of the New York Yankees. I would read the New York Times or whatever. I would pick, so I don't even know how I would pick the newspaper. But I would read all the events leading up to um, a sh- Schmeling Lewis. I would do that when I was 12 and 13 and 11. Um, and I knew I was drawn to this. And my math and science scores could not have been lower than the lowest of anyone who's ever taken the SAT. (laughs) But I knew, I knew I could control, I could master the language. And so I would marry my two interests, the language and sports. And so for me, I don't like, I don't know what I would, I don't know. I don't have any idea. I've, I've had one. I I had the only job I've ever had in my life are the paper route. And that's the newspaper delivering the Tribune and Sun-Times for seven years, six years. So I did that as a kid. I worked at my uncle's grocery store in 83rd and Ellis. And then I got a job at the Washington Post. That's it. I didn't wait tables. I didn't do, I had an internship at University Relations at Northwestern and what I learned is, and please forgive me all the PR professionals who I'm close to over my life and there are a great many. I knew I didn't wanna do PR. I did it for a semester and was like, I'm done, that's it. And I did that, you know, because that was work study. That was whatever. But I knew way early on, by my sophomore year in high school, what I wanted to do. And so I took a journalism class at St. Ignatius. Thank you, Jim Wall, the teacher, James Wall. Um, I took English. my, 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 My elective classes were in English. Maybe they were composition writing. Maybe they were short essay writing. I knew. And I I didn't do it as a, well, let me plot it out this way. I did it because that was my passion. The language and sports. So if I wasn't writing about sports all those years, 30 years of the Washington Post, then I would have been covering politics or writing about fashion or music. I don't know, something. I could have written about a lot of other things in sports. But that's what it became. That's what it remained. And I don't have any regrets. And I don't, I don't wonder one day, again, my big decision in my life was, whether to say yes to the Tribune or not. And um, the people I had conversations, now that I'm telling you this, I remember remember Michael Jeffrey Jordan calling me, saying, so it's out there. You're going to leave the Washington Post to come home to the Tribune? I'm like, how do you even know this? And he said, not only do I know it, I want you to tell me what you're going to do. And I remember I talked to Michael about that not too long ago. During the last dance, I talked to him about that conversation we had which he had influence over my decision I'm not going to get into what that influence was but that remains off the records forever
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but um I that was the that's the hardest decision of my life was to come home or not and I every day George every time I walk down Michigan Avenue I wonder what my life would have been like if I come home every day and I have no I don't have an answer I don't know
0: In wrapping this up, Michael, I've got to tell you something. I I wish I could turn back the clock so I could sit on a park bench with you and talk sports because I really think we would have had a blast. Thank you, Michael Wilbon, for telling me a story I don't know. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, It's cathartic. It's like being on a psychiatrist's sofa. For an hour. I don't know if I should send you a send you a check or just you send me a bill. I'll send you the bill. <laughs> you send me the bill. But thanks, man. I appreciate it.
0: My thanks to ESPN and pardon the interruption for those great highlights, and to TJ Reeves for his hard work and dedication in putting this podcast on the map. Also to Will Hatzel for some crafty editing, TT Schinken for her illustrious illustrations, and to Ken Schreiner for always being there. Also, to our sponsors, the Polina Market. Please visit them at polinamarket.com and to Vienna Beef, a Chicago institution since 1893. You can find them at ViennaBeef.com. Please join us for our next effort on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.